who is wise and understanding among you. We all certainly need to be wise and, and understanding, and that's the question with which we begin our study tonight in the Epistle of James, the Gospel of Common Sense, as it has been often called, so much practical teaching that leads to perfection. Practical teaching leading to perfection, not sinless perfection, because that's not a possibility, but perfection in the sense of wholeness and completeness, being everything that, that God would have us be to be pleasing to Him. And a part of that is truly being wise and understanding. But who is wise and understanding among you? That's the question with which the section we're studying tonight begins. That's James chapter 3. James 3, verses 13 through 18. And in this section, James discusses divine wisdom. Divine wisdom that results in peace and righteousness. What a great result that kind of wisdom is. To have peace, to have righteousness. And that is opposed in his discussion to another kind of wisdom a wisdom that we do not need to have, in fact, a wisdom that we must not seek to attain, and yet, tragically, it's a wisdom that a great many people, if not the vast majority in this world, are seeking to attain, and that's earthly wisdom, sensual wisdom, a wisdom that does not lead to peace and righteousness, but a wisdom that, in fact, results in strife and envy and confusion, none of which is desirable. It seems that in these verses, 13 through 18 of chapter 3, James reverts to his discussion of the teacher. You remember back in chapter 3, the first verse of this chapter, where we're introduced ultimately to a great lengthy discussion, an important discussion on the tongue and the use of the tongue. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Don't become teachers too quickly. Remember, we talked about the fact that apparently there were those who were desirous of being teachers, of being in the public eye and being public teachers, but James says to them, don't rush into that. And we know that there were those who were seeking to do that, and in, do and in doing so, they were, they were not qualified to do so, and yet they wanted that, that position of honor, and yet they were not preparing themselves. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, and we looked at this when we looked at chapter 3, verse 1 earlier. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, at verse 5, Paul writes, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, now here's the part, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. In other words, they want the notoriety, they want the position, they want the honor, but they really are unprepared to do the job. Therefore, James here says, brethren, don't rush into this. Realize the awesome responsibility that is associated with being a public proclaimer of the Word of God. And that awesome judgment that will come, that stricter judgment, because you are seeking to influence the lives of others. And before you take on that responsibility, you need to take very seriously the consequences that follow. Oh yes, there are great rewards, tremendous rewards, 
if you do it well and if you prepare and if you do it with the right attitude. And that's where he gets back to, it seems here, beginning in verse 13. Who is it that really is wise? Who is it that really has understanding among you? How do you show that? By, by making yourself a teacher, by becoming a, proc, a public proclaimer of the Word of God, by seeking the attention that sometimes and many times comes to those who are in the public eye in that respect, preachers, teachers, etc. Who is wise and understanding? Among you. You know, on the basis of that question, some might have been prompted to reply, well, uh, that's a good question, James, for some people, for those who aren't qualified, but I don't need it because I am wise and knowledgeable. If you were to answer that way, you would need the, uh, the lesson uh, particularly <laughs> well, wouldn't you? You'd need that uh, in particular. It would particularly apply to you. And I know there's no one here who would answer in that way tonight, but there may have been some among James's readers early on who might have had that attitude. What attitude does that reflect? An attitude of pride, an attitude of arrogance, an attitude of self-sufficiency. And remember what Paul wrote about that in Romans 12:3, where he wrote, For I say through the grace that was given me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But what? Think as to think soberly. Think soberly according as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. And those who would become or seek to become public proclaimers of the Word of God, teachers of the Word of God, need to think soberly and very carefully about that responsibility. There are two very essential qualifications of all teachers and preachers of the Word. Wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is the result of study and experience. I forget who it was, the gospel preacher who was well known, but I don't remember which one it was, who upon being heard by someone in a gospel meeting or at some point in time came to this well-known preacher and said, I would give, I'd give my life uh, uh, to, uh, to know the Bible like you do. And he said, well, that's what it's cost me. In other words, years and years and years of diligent study and preparation in order to become a faithful proclaimer, a faithful teacher of the Word of God. So knowledge is essential, yes, and that comes through study and experience, but there's wisdom that is also that essential qualification, and that's the ability to put to practical use the divine principles that relate to everyday life. Now, how is the teacher to demonstrate that he has wisdom? James gives the answer here in the latter part of verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show, by what? By good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Oh, how important it is to couple that knowledge that comes through years of study and dedication and experience. Oh, how crucial it is to couple with that true wisdom. Wisdom that is demonstrated by what? Good conduct. Good conduct that is done in the what? In the meekness of wisdom. The acid test of true wisdom is seen in its deeds, is seen in its works, its fruit, not in its words. Wisdom is not seen in someone telling you how wise that individual is. 
but how that individual demonstrates it in meekness. Meekness. What does it mean? We've talked about it before. It doesn't mean weakness, does it? It, uh, it doesn't mean a lack of boldness. It does not mean a lack of courage or one who is fearful. No, not, a, not at all. And remember in Moses, Numbers 12, 3, was said to be meek above all men who were upon the face of the earth. And yet he was a strong leader for God. But it does denote humility. It does denote a strength under control, a gentleness, a consideration. And we need to manifest these attitudes when we're seeking to teach others. And really, shouldn't all of us be teachers to some degree in some respects as we have that opportunity? It may not be in the public realm as we've talked about before, as we've talked about this matter, but certainly we need to do all that we can to take advantage of every opportunity to teach. And as we do, we are to do it with that proper attitude. Reminds me of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet what? Again, with meekness and fear. Reverence and respect for God, obviously. But respect also, I think, is implied there for the one to whom you're giving the answer. And you do it in meekness and respect. How important that is when we're dealing with others. You see, it's not an attitude of, boy, I really pinned his ears back. I gave him an answer, didn't I? I told him a thing or two. What kind of attitude is that? It's not the proper attitude that James is describing here, is it? No, indeed. And then he says, verse 14, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. James approaches the nature of true wisdom as he did true faith back in the previous chapter in James chapter 2, emphasizing both the positive and the negative characteristics. Real genuine faith involves the thou shalt as well as the thou shalt not, and a continual absence of one and a continual presence of the other invalidates faith. It's, it's what we do and what we do not do both combined, but that's true also of wisdom. There's the positive side. We must manifest it in righteous living, verse 13. There's the negative side. We must not and we cannot manifest our wisdom in a bitterness and an envy and a strife. Sometimes those who are public proclaimers of the Word of God are in positions where they have a difficult time dealing with humility and, and avoiding selfish ambition because that's a temptation, especially if they are those who are very well known as some of our brethren have been over the years and uh, especially uh, those who have gained a great deal of, of notoriety in the brotherhood at a young uh, age. And I can think of a man right now, and I won't mention his name, but who at a very young age, uh, had a great deal of attention come his way. Oh, he was, he was to be uh, one who was going to be a great champion of truth for, uh, for who knows uh, how many years to come. And a great deal of attention was heaped upon him. And today, he is an apostate. He's an apostate. Capable, 
trained with the best education one could have, advanced degrees, which may have been a part of the problem. In fact, I don't doubt that they were. And yet, left the truth. Left the truth. And I remember another preacher in whom I have a great deal of confidence saying about this man words to this effect. I think it was just too much too soon. Too much attention, too much notoriety, too many accolades, too soon. And he did not handle it well. That was the estimation of this older brother at least. So it happens. It happens. And we need to make sure that we do not get caught up in, in bitter envy, in self-seeking, and the kind of strife that can sometimes develop, yes, even uh, among preachers toward each other. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. What a sin that is for that to occur. And so selfish ambition is a temptation, not just to preachers, but to others in other realms as well. But he says here, if you have that kind of attitude, that kind of self-seeking in your hearts, why should you boast? You are boasting, in effect. And that's against God's will. And you're actually lying against the truth. Evidently, some of those to whom James was writing were teachers who may have been guilty of pride and feelings of superiority because of their knowledge. Because of their achievements, at least he's warning against it if they didn't already exhibit it. He was asking them, telling them not to do it. And reminding them there's no room in Christianity for, for boasting. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, what kind of works? Not all kinds of works, but not of works of our own doing, in other words. Not of works by which we could boast. Who are we? We cannot boast about anything in Christianity, regardless of what we're doing in the church, who we are, whether we're elder, deacon, preacher, etc. Whatever we're doing as a teacher, whatever it is, we're just simply using the gifts that God has blessed us with, and we're stewards of those gifts. James has already reminded us of that in James chapter 1 and verse 17 when he wrote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We're stewards of everything. And if we're blessed with ability or abilities, plural, we're simply using or should be what God has given us and there's nothing about which to boast. Knowledge accumulated, success that's achieved is simply a result, whatever that success is, is simply a result of utilizing God's physical, mental, and spiritual blessings that He has given us. And He wants us to use them, but He wants us to use them, yes, to the fullest extent, but when we have and as we do, He wants us to recognize who the giver of those gifts is. And that we're, when we've done everything that we can do to serve Him, we're still to consider ourselves unprofitable servants, not self-seeking, boastful individuals. You know, it gets back to the tongue, doesn't it? And that's what James has dealt with a great deal in this chapter. When a man uses his tongue to boast about his superior knowledge and wisdom, and at the same time harbors envy and strife in his heart, 
He is by his actions opposing and denying the very truth he claims to believe. He is boasting and lying against the truth. When we claim to speak the truth but fail to live the truth, we're actually opposing and denying the truth. That's what James reminds us of. Christ said that of the Pharisees, didn't he? Remember in Matthew 23, All things, whatever they bid you, these do and observe, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Oh, they were proclaiming themselves to be great teachers, weren't they? But they said and did not do. They said and did not do. And so these characteristics of the wrong kind of teaching are revealed by James here. Bitterness, bitter envy, and self-seeking, a self-seeking attitude in our hearts. We must make sure we avoid that. A selfish, self-seeking attitude is more eager to display itself than it is to dispense the truth. And we should always be about dispensing the truth. Arrogance has no place in the Christian's life. And pride in knowledge rather than humility in ignorance is something that's repugnant to the God of heaven. You know, the real teacher, the real teacher is more aware of what he doesn't know than what he knows. And really, and you've heard it said, the more you study the Word of God, the more you realize how little you know about it. doesn't mean you can't know what to do to become a child of God and how to please God and live the Christian life. That's not what we're saying. But in other words, there's just so much there, so many treasures in the Word of God that are there, and each time you go back to that treasure chest, you realize something you didn't know or didn't didn't fully appreciate, didn't grasp as fully and as deeply as perhaps you had uh, when you read the same thing before. Again, that's the beauty of God's Word. It can convert you quickly if you've got the right kind of attitude and the right kind of heart and tell you how to live thereafter and draw you back to its pages day in and day out and have you come away from that experience more impressed than ever with its inspiration and more aware than ever of how much more there is to learn and how much more we can grow as we feed upon the Word of God. And that's a beautiful existence, a beautiful existence. This wisdom that James has just talked about in verse 14 that is characterized by bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, this wisdom, he says in verse 15, does not descend from above. Oh, no. If you've got that kind of wisdom, you didn't get it from God. You didn't get it from God's Word. If the wisdom you claim to have and the understanding that you claim to have, James says, is uh, characterized by this envy and self-seeking and boastfulness, then you didn't get that from God. That didn't come from above. But it's rather earthly sensual, and demonic. This wisdom, what wisdom? That which produces bitter envying and strife. God is never the source, nor could he ever be the source of that kind of wisdom. And so James is saying, if there's a teacher among you claiming superior wisdom, 
and manifesting this envy and strife and creating disruption in the body of Christ, in the church of our Lord, then he did not get it from above. But you know, doesn't that indicate that there is a wisdom from above? And we don't have to wait long to realize that James is going to tell us that indeed there is a wisdom from above. But this one about which he speaks in verse 15 is earthly. That is earthly in origin. It's a wisdom based upon earthly standards. It measures itself in worldly terms. It has worldly aims. And there are far too many who are caught up in the pursuit of that kind of wisdom and who would quickly tell you if you're seeking the other kind, the kind that comes from above, that you are foolish beyond description, that you are ignorant beyond words because you believe in something called the Bible rather than in something called evolution, humanism, atheism, all sorts of isms that are opposed to the word of God. Oh yes, we've talked about the intimidating efforts that are made by those who deny the wisdom from above and who cling to the wisdom that is earthly in its origin. And they think we are fools gone to seed for seeking anything beyond what this world has to offer. But James reassures us that it's not that earthly wisdom it's not that sensual wisdom that basically makes us like animals, the kind of wisdom that motivates animals to snap and snarl at one another that becomes devilish. You, devilish. you almost see a progression. In fact, you do see a progression. Earthly in origin, then it becomes more sensual as you give in to that, that kind of thinking, and then ultimately it's described as being demonic because it is against God's will. It's devilish. It is demonic in nature. The order of those words is significant. Worldly in disposition, not long until it yields to the desires of the lower nature. And finally, that kind of wisdom partakes of the character of demons themselves because it's demonic. And what is the result of that kind of wisdom which manifests itself in envy and strife, verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. There's nothing about this kind of wisdom that James is describing right here that is beneficial at all. Because this kind of wisdom, instead of fostering peace and unity and fellowship, produces rather warfare division, alienation, nothing that is good. Instead of binding together, it drives men apart. Instead of producing peace, it produces strife. You know, one may possess a very sharp tongue, a very shrewd mind, a very ready wit. His accomplishments may secure for him much worldly acclaim. But if his efforts cause trouble among brethren... And if his efforts create disunity in the church, then his wisdom descends not from above. Rest assured, it's earthly, it's sensual, it is demonic. 
you know, Satan always has a false or spurious substitute for every single principle in the divine system, doesn't he? And that's what we're looking at here. Earthly devilish wisdom, he substitutes for divine wisdom. One God. Satan substitutes many gods. One divine book. Satan has inspired every religious group to design its own religious books and its own creeds and its own laws and its own traditions. The divine system has one baptism. As immersion, Satan offers sprinkling and pouring various modes that he has devised and that men have embraced. The divine system offers one pattern of church financing, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Christians are to give their means on the first day of the week. Satan offers bake sales and car washes and donut sales along with every other money-making gimmick available. You won't find that in Scripture. That's a substitute for the divine pattern for financing the work of the church. The divine system offers one church, Matthew 16, 18, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Ephesians 4 and verse 4. Satan offers thousands of substitutes. The divine system has but one plan of salvation. Satan offers a bag full and you just reach in that bag and pick the one of your choosing. And so this wisdom James talks about here is Satan's substitute for the true wisdom of which he's about to speak now in verse 17. Notice what he says. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Oh, what a passage. What a passage. This passage contains the most beautiful and exhaustive description ever given about true wisdom. It's very much like Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the source of this wisdom is to be contrasted with that of verse 15. Earthly, sensual, demonic. Here's the contrast. The wisdom in verse 15 claimed by these teachers originated with Satan. Why? Because its characteristics are envy and strife. But now the wisdom of verse 17 originated with God. Why? Because its characteristics are as follows. First, pure. Pure, uncontaminated, without fault, holy and completely good, free from defilement of fleshly thinking. There's no mixture of evil in it. It is free of all ulterior motives. It is next peaceable. And isn't that what characterizes the entire Christian system? Peace. Peace is designed to characterize the entire Christian system. And this wisdom from above will promote peace. It will promote harmony. It will promote unity. And that's an absolutely essential characteristic of the New Testament church. We need peacemakers. The Lord said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. This wisdom from above is gentle. Gentle. That's the ability to extend to others the kindly consideration that we want others to extend to us. It's really the golden rule in that respect, isn't it? And this 
kind of peace, or wisdom rather, is also willing to yield. King James says, easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated, willing to yield, open-minded, open to reason. The very opposite of one who's dogmatic, who's unyielding, who's stubborn. But this is descriptive of one who's willing to listen to other people. One who does not refuse to do something just because the suggestion came from someone else rather than himself. It's the attitude that is willing to acknowledge error and yield to what is right. It's not the attitude that says, I'm right, you're wrong. It's the attitude that says the Bible is right and everything else is wrong. That is not biblical. But we don't need to confuse this kind of attitude with one who is susceptible to every wind of doctrine. Just because he's willing to yield or easy to be entreated doesn't mean that he is susceptible or should be susceptible to every wind of doctrine. Remember what Paul wrote about that in Ephesians 4 and verse 14, that ye be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and craftiness after the wiles of error. No, we are not to be characterized by that kind of wavering. We have the New Testament. We can know what is right. And we're not to be led astray, but we are to be willing to yield to others listen to the opinions of others, consider the needs of others, and then he goes on, full of mercy and good fruits. Notice, full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy. Thayer describes it as, as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. A kind attitude toward the afflicted, but a desire to also relieve that affliction. And you know something, this mercy that we are to have, if we are to have the wisdom from above, is also extended to someone who is miserable and suffering justly, as well as the one who is suffering unjustly. Yes, we often might think that we have no responsibility toward the man who's in trouble due to his own actions. And certainly, he bears responsibility or his own actions, but do we not have mercy when we have opportunity to show mercy and hopefully bring that person to his senses and not rub his nose in what he has done, etc., and to man manifest the right kind of attitude that will hopefully bring about a change? What about this? Were we in deep trouble due to sin? Those of us who are Christians here tonight? Oh, yes. Mankind was in deep trouble due to sin. And God didn't say, it's your own fault. You brought it on yourself. I'll leave you to your own destruction. Divine mercy was extended to man, even though he was unlovable and undeserving. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5.1. And so, failure to manifest mercy is going to result in our facing a merciless God in judgment. Remember what James wrote back in James chapter 2 and verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
full of mercy, full of mercy. Doesn't that express a presence of something in large degree? Of course it does. Full of good fruits. Fruits here he talks about. Fruits. This wisdom is fruitful. The wisdom from above is fruitful. It bears fruit. It is productive. What kind of fruit? Good fruits as opposed to the envy and the strife caused by false wisdom. So wisdom from above doesn't just produce a sprinkling of good fruits, not just an occasional off and on type thing, but it's constant and continual as we seek to bear much fruit. Remember John 15, 8? John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. And it's also without partiality. It does not make distinctions, in other words. Without partiality, this wisdom from above. It accepts all on an equal basis. Has James written anything about this yet? He has, hasn't he? Remember James chapter 2, my brethren, verse 1, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. It talks about the man who comes into your assembly with fine clothes, the one who comes in with rags on, and you pay attention more to the one with the fine clothing than you do the one with the rags. You've got a problem, he said, if that's your attitude. So the wisdom that comes from above shows no partiality. It doesn't make distinctions. It's consistent in its conduct. It doesn't act one way in one circumstance and another way in a different circumstance. And it's also without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Who's a hypocrite? A play actor. That's what the word means. One who plays a part. And thus, he doesn't reveal his true self. He practices deception. He's dishonest. He's insincere. He appears to be something other than what he really is. The wisdom from above doesn't prompt one to wear a mask and to play a part. It allows him to appear in his true character, a character that is based upon the principles of New Testament Christianity. And finally, verse 18, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of righteousness. What is the fruit of righteousness? That, kind, that is the good works that righteousness motivates one to do. It's the holy life that righteousness prompts one to live. Righteousness is the seed out of which good works grow, from which this holy life that we are to live springs. But here's a crucial question. What kind of climate or environment is necessary for this good life, this holy life, these good deeds to grow and flourish. What kind of environment is needed for that to happen? Peace. An environment of peace. Have you ever known congregations that were characterized by envy and strife, plagued, it seemed, by envy and strife? Nothing good can result from that kind of climate. Nothing good. Good deeds and holy living can no more survive in that kind of environment than a cactus could in Alaska. No congregation can fulfill its mission except in an environment of peace. And I'm so thankful that I'm speaking to a congregation tonight that doesn't need to 
change and become that kind of congregation, one characterized by peace. But I'm speaking to one that is already characterized by peace. And for that I am grateful. And I'm sure you are as well. And you're contributing to that peace. And God bless you for that. As we close tonight, we need to remember that teachers, as James reminds us, must be ever aware of their responsibility before God and men. And be reminded, as we've studied in this chapter, not to be deceived by the size of the tongue. It's a small thing, but it is powerful, so powerful that its power describes or defies description. It can be what the match, the little match is to a forest. It can be an instrument of ruin and destruction. Or it can be what the scalpel is to the surgeon, an instrument of healing and salvation. And so who is wise and understanding among you? The man who lives godly, meekly, and peaceably before God and his fellow man. If that doesn't characterize you tonight because you are not a Christian, then we plead with you to become one so that your life can be characterized in that way because you cannot be characterized as wise if you have not been wise enough to see how crucial it is that you obey the gospel of Christ. And we plead with you to, to do that. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess Him to be the Christ. Be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. Wisdom is not measured by the level of education that one has. True wisdom is measured by one's ability and willingness to see that there's something far, far more important than that secular education, and that is the spiritual spiritual education that's available to all through the all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. If you need to come home to your first love tonight, we plead with you to do that. If you've sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church, come home to your first love tonight. And to this congregation, let me encourage you to continue to be the kind of congregation that is truly characterized, I believe with all my heart, by a peace that pleases God and that will be a magnetizing influence to those who are thinking as they should and observe that peace and unity and harmony that exists here. Tonight, if you need to respond, will you come as we stand to sing?